From WNYC's Radio Rookies and the Public Radio Exchange, this is Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath. I'm Brooke Gladstone. When the towers were attacked, we were all living our suburban life, but supposedly ready for anything. And my dad was sent to the foot of the World Trade Center. Hello? Hi, it's me. Hi. You're live on the radio, no cursing. I thought he was hilarious. Hi, Mom. Okay, well, now here's your mother live on the radio. Both of you stay. I could see the plane had hit about where his office was, so I realized, Dad, I'd never find him. I was only in the first grade, so I thought any man wearing a turban was Bin Laden including this dad who was just dropping off his kid at school. One news anchor after another said that the terrorists were Muslim. Suddenly, it seemed like so much of what I believed, the world felt threatened by. So you have no specific memories of that day? No. Do you think I haven't thought about this before? I've tried to remember. Amid the multitude of experiences recalled in this 10th anniversary year, some are more transformative than others, not just because of the pain and the loss, but because of timing. Because the tragedy happens so early in a child's life, the kid can barely remember a time before. Last spring, WNYC's Radio Rookies, which teaches teenagers how to report the stories of their own lives, put out a call for young people to tell us about their 9-11. We begin with 18-year-old Jillian Suarez. Like some 3,000 other children, on September 11th, she faced perhaps the biggest loss of all. Mom, can you tell me the story of what happened on 9-11? Starting from when I woke up, okay, I remember waking up um, almost at four in the morning and seeing your daddy leave. I saw the back of his head as he was leaving, and then I went back to sleep. This is a story I never even wanted to tell. So wait, you're probably wondering, why am I telling a bunch of strangers? I just want to be done with it. Just let it out. Listen, I lost my best friend two days after my birthday. My dad. I'll tell you the story, but I want to tell it without tears. Were you scared to tell me the truth? Yes. I couldn't tell you the truth at that moment because I was not going to lose hope about your daddy being gone. And he was a very strong man, so I knew he had to stay alive, and I didn't want to hear anything negative from anybody. So they kept searching and searching and searching, and three months passed by, and then that's when they told me that they had found them, and then that morning I had to tell you that they found Daddy. And I remember that you smiled, And I told you it wasn't good. And then I just remember one tear coming down out of your eyes. And you want to take a break? What bothers you the most? That I didn't get to say goodbye to him. That he's not here to see you grow up. Okay. Next. How do you feel about me not talking about 9-11? I think you should talk about it. 
do you feel that it's important to talk about your feelings in 9-11? I'm asking you that question. I don't know. Why? You don't know. I don't know. Don't you want to talk about it? I don't know. This is my first time talking about it. I'm not comfortable. I don't know why. I'm just not comfortable. I actually get mad when someone tries to talk to me. I'd rather just hang out with my friends, walk around in the city, shopping, movies, going out to eat, dancing. You get the idea. I don't think anyone would really get it, what it means to lose your dad in a terrorist attack. And then to be reminded of it every five seconds, especially the news, pretty much every year, I get so annoyed. Nobody in my family besides my mom ever wants to talk about life after him. Hey, Tiff. Like my cousin Tiffany. Tiff. Tiff? I need to ask you something. Please? I'm not doing this. You have to. Why? See? Because it's about daddy. Oh, no. I don't know what to say. Everyone has always said, I'm here for you. Stay strong. I'm here if you want to talk. Blah, blah, blah. Usual condolences. And I usually just say, yeah, I know, it sucks. Sometimes I smile and say thank you. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate the sympathies, but I just want to be left alone. Why? It's okay to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Because it bothers you a lot? It hurts you a lot? Yes. Do you feel, which I know this is how I feel, a sense of emptiness? Yeah. Yes. Because we're not complete anymore. The worst is during November till January. That's when I shut down. Not having him around for the holidays really brings me down. I also sleep so much more. And when it comes to finals, I barely pass because all I do is sleep instead of studying. Sometimes I think I need to talk to someone professional. But I'm not ready. If you don't talk about it, you can't keep healing I'll heal within time talking about it is part of the healing process but it takes time and yes it does and so far it's it's already 10 years and I know 10 years still feels like one year because it's always going to feel like one year I don't think people understand that you need to be ready to do certain things one day I'll talk more Just not right now. Telling you my story is enough. So I did it. I told you and I didn't cry. Well, in front of you. For WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Jillian Suarez. This year, for the first time, Jillian is reading her father's name at the official memorial service at the World Trade Center site. September 11 falls on what day of the week this year? Sunday. Sunday. Sunday, okay. I recently sat down in the WNYC studios with three of the radio rookies who produce the stories you'll hear in this hour. Each of them is finding their own way to commemorate the 10th anniversary. And so what I will be doing on September 11 is really keeping everybody in my prayers. And, and I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in that. Like, my prayers have really helped me. So I don't I know exactly what we're doing yet, partially because I really just don't like to think of that day. I plan to surround myself with 
friends and family. On the 10th, my dad's whole battalion has a mass just for the firemen. And some of them have known me since I've been like, before I can remember, so. One of the radio rookies actually started an event in his suburban town to honor the victims of September 11th. Joey Rizzolo grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, and though seven people died from there, he did not suffer a personal loss. And yet, years later, 9-11 came to define his life. A 15-year-old boy is taking on a massive mission. I've been all over the news. Joey Rizzolo loves his country so much. is on a mission to thank the troops. I started the first freedom walk in New Jersey. It's a candlelight walk to remember September 11th. Because the walk is a lot of work, and I've gotten a lot of attention from the news, my family, and my friends, September 11th is now 95% of who I am. It's refreshing to know we have youth of America. Okay, maybe 60%. Hi, this is Joey Rosolo. I am in my room right now with my mom, Rosa Rosolo. Now, what was my reaction on 9-11-01? Well, you were here with your grandmother. You were supposed to get your cast off that day, so... Grandma decided she was going to turn on the news. We have a breaking story. On the TV screen, I saw black smoke and people yelling. Both World Trade Center buildings have collapsed. It was really scary. Later that night, there were pictures of Osama bin Laden all over the news. My mom says the next day, I did not want to go to school. I actually took you to school that day. I didn't let you take the bus. I was only in the first grade, so I thought any man wearing a turban was bin Laden including this dad who was just dropping off his kid at school. When you started screaming that there was the guy who killed all the people, the principal had to take you and calm you down, and you're like, there's the killer. Hearing about it now is embarrassing. This poor guy just had this look on his face. Like, I was must have apologized to him about a million times. I can't believe I would do anything like that because I'm a nice kid. This is Joey Rosello in our dining room with Mrs. Jane Costco, my old teacher. Um, <laughs> former. My former teacher. Mrs. Costco's class was fun. It was a computer arts class I had in sixth grade. I remember you being very shy. She inspired me to do this walk because of her work with Operation Goodie Bag. Coloring brown lunch bags, putting five pieces of candy, and a personal letter of thanks and a patriotic poem inside each one. In four years, students from my school were able to pack 50,000 goodie bags to send to our troops and first responders. We were even listed on a website for a Department of Defense program that helped soldiers and veterans. When I went on the computer and looked at the site, I saw videos from their Freedom Walk in Washington, D.C. It was just one of more than 100 Freedom Walks. A crowd of over 11,000 people walking near the Pentagon. I was amazed. Ever since September 11th, I had worried about terrorism. I was always with my mom and didn't leave her side. Seeing the video made me feel like we don't have to be afraid and hide from terrorists. Then I thought, wow, we can do this in Primus. And I said, Joey, I have a lot to do with Operation Goodie Bag. If you want to have a freedom walk, you can have a freedom walk. And you did. Welcome to the second annual Paramus Freedom Walk. We were expecting six kids around the track at the school, but it worked out to be much bigger than that. We had about 400 people the first year, and five years later, we're getting about 1,000. 
Hi, this is Joey Rosola with my sister, Christina, in our dining room. Would you have ever expected me to organize the walk? No, because it kind of just came out of nowhere at the time. You met the president. <laughs> that was really cool. I still can't believe I met President Bush. I know. I don't sound excited, but trust me, I am. And now you know how to handle people. You know how to handle situations a lot better than you did before. Like organizing a committee that helps plan the walk every year. We'll get Anthony's Jeep and stick uh, two flyers on the side. Duct tape them on. <laughs> it's me, Matt, Rich, Vinny, Brandon, Caitlin, Gabriella, Tori, Eric, Mike, Max, Fabio, and Anthony. Now, what was your opinion on food? In Popcorn in a cooler. <laughs> We're like a Little League baseball team, having fun and making jokes in the dugout. Not many people believe we're the ones doing it. God bless America. Last year, we dedicated our walk to a local Marine from the next town over who died in Afghanistan. I know some people think the wars we're fighting overseas makes us more of a target, but I think the soldiers are making me feel less afraid. I even have my email address as Freedom Rocks. This year's walk will be focused on the victims of 9-11. My name is Barbara Pandolfo. Two years ago, I met Mrs. Pandolfo at the walk. She gave me a special lapel pin with the Twin Towers and a black ribbon and said, this is for you. Then I found out her daughter was killed on 9-11. So what do you usually think about while you're walking? I think about my daughter, and she was 27 when she died. And uh, it's a very great loss for me. She was my only child. And I just feel you were doing so much to remember 9-11 that I wanted you to have the pin as a remembrance of Dominique and me and our participation in in the walk. Well, I would like to just say thank you for it. I mean, it really means a lot. Most people who are involved in organizing 9-11 programs have been personally affected by this tragedy. Even though I wasn't, I chose to make it a part of me. And there's always more work to do. We still have to buy 800 hamburgers, 800 hot dogs, 40 cases of water bottles. We have to pick up the grills and buy 1,000 candles. John and Ed will definitely do it for free. They could probably do it for free. They'll flip burgers all day. For WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Joey Rizzola. You're listening to Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath. After the break, the story of an 11-year-old girl who suddenly found herself being called the enemy in her own hometown. I'm Brooke Gladstone. For many young people, 9-11 was a time to reaffirm a sense of connection to their city, even to their country. But for rookie reporter Norhan Basuni, 9-11 marked a shift, not in her feelings about America, but in many of her neighbors' feelings toward her. You went one for ten, that's 10%. I'm playing basketball at a 4th of July barbecue with my family in heels. I was definitely being scrubbed. That was money! Fourth of July is one of my favorite holidays. And not just because I love hamburgers, hot dogs, potato salad, and fireworks, but because I love the time with my family. When I was a kid, I didn't think much about the fact that I'm an American because it didn't occur to me that it could be challenged. We understand that a plane has crashed into... On the afternoon of 9-11, my father picked up my brother and me from school. My mom was at work in Manhattan. I'm crying like a crazy. That's because I love this country. 
We sat in the living room watching TV. I was horrified. Then for days, the news was filled with talk of Muslim terrorists, people who acted in the name of Islam. As a Muslim seventh grader from Brooklyn, suddenly it seemed like so much of what I believed the world felt threatened by. It made no sense to me. I remember my dad telling us, True Muslim will not hurt anybody else. A true Muslim will not hurt anyone else. After a while, he just turned off the TV and put on Quran. We didn't know what to say to you. My mom says she didn't know how to explain Al-Qaeda because she didn't understand herself. We told you things. Well, we hard for us and we have to be patient. A year before September 11th, I started wearing a headscarf, or what we call the hijab. As a little girl, I was fascinated with hijabi women in Egyptian soap operas. I would go through my mom's closet and pull out her finest silk hijabs in blues, reds, green, and pink. When I started wearing it myself, it made me feel beautiful. I had never felt like an outsider until after 9-11. Kids at school started mocking me and saying things like, Go back to where you came from. Nobody wants you guys here. Did you know I was getting into fights and arguments at school? Yes, I had an idea. But you told me it wasn't a big deal, Mommy. My sister was a freshman in college that fall. And during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, she carried a prayer rug with her to class. My microbiology professor was like, oh, you're going to fly away on your magic carpet? The class was just like laughing, and one boy blurted out, oh, she's going to fly right into the Empire State Building like her people ran into the World Trade Center. A grown man pulled off my hijab while I was standing at a bus stop. No one said, hey, leave her alone. She's just a little girl. My best friend got stabbed on Fifth Avenue, her and her mom, because they wore the headscarf. That same night, my dad said, maybe for the time being, it's best that you and your sister not wear hijab. It was a tough time. It was a tough time. So do you think that we were upset? Yes, you were upset because you don't want to take off the hijab. I didn't want to hide. But, you know, when you worry about safeties, you know, that was the best thing to do. It was five months before we put the hijab back on. But when we did... My father encouraged us to learn as much about Islam as we could. I want you to explain things to people that don't understand what hijab means or what Islam means. Don't be offended by them because they don't understand, so you need to explain to them. This country gives you a lot. And you have to give the country also a lot. We started going to all kinds of lectures and prayers at the Muslim American Society's Youth Center. And one afternoon, my father brought home a flyer for a sister's camp at the center. I was so excited. I remember he dropped us off with our pillows. You need a place to express yourself, and we really didn't have that if it wasn't for the youth center. Ahlam was our camp director. We were able to talk about the problems and express how we felt in a supported area. I slept in a tent. I'm not going to lie. The counselors had decorated the entire floor of the youth center, so it would look and feel like a real outdoor camp with leaves and twigs scattered all over and the smell of chocolate melting against marshmallows. You guys had a tent, that's right. After 9-11, this was the one place where it made sense to be a Muslim and an American. And when it didn't, I would hunt down Ahlam. And you'd ask very specific questions, and you'd be like, but you sure? I remember asking Ahlam about jihad. I never heard that word before 9-11, but Ahlam broke it down. 
She said jihad comes from the Arabic root word juhd, that means to struggle. She asked me what I struggled with, and I said patience. So then I asked why jihad was defined as a holy war in the news. Ahlam said, perhaps the terrorists felt their struggle was a holy war against the West. But that's wrong. And that's not your struggle as a Muslim. Okay, can you say your name for me? Trisha Gita Gangadine. Do you feel comfortable asking me anything about Islam? Yeah, totally. I wanted to be that hijabi that people knew they can go to with questions. I would ask you first before I ask anyone else, just because if it's a stupid question. In high school, people would see me and say, Islam's 411 operator. You're like the Islam encyclopedia. <laughs> and in college, I was still the go-to girl. Mark, when did we first meet? We met in Professor Zomer's Government 259 class. In my comparative criminal justice class, I sat next to this white guy with a huge U.S. Marine Corps tattoo on his right arm. So, do you know what my first impression of you was? Uh, probably that I was some stupid military guy with a <laughs> dumb haircut. Mark and I started to get into heavy conversations about religion, the military, and politics. He listened to me when I explained the true concept of jihad. And he ended up telling guys from his drill unit one night at a bar. And they were like, yeah, it's the holy war. And I'm like, well, that's one Muslim extremist's interpretation of it. And that's not exactly what it means. It means a struggle between yourself and something else or someone else. And they kind of just sat there and were like, oh, 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 yeah. So I was kind of like, shut the f*** up, basically. Did you tell them where you learned it from? Yeah, I told them I, I have several Muslim friends at my college, and they explained it to me. But I explained it to you. Well, you did, yeah. But I like to say that I have more than one Muslim friend, and I do. But I'm your favorite. Yeah. Yes, you are. <laughs> A few months ago, my sister, father, and I went to go see X-Men. The real enemy is out there. My whole family loves Marvel Comics. Before we left the theater, my sister and I went to the restroom. And this woman stopped us on the way out and asked one question after another. Like, so was your marriage arranged? Why do you wear the headscarf? We were taking so long in the bathroom that my father got worried. Why do you wear that on your head? Or why do you do that? In the car on the way home, my sister was still explaining why we stayed so long answering her questions. What are we going to say to them? Well, I'll explain to you another time. They're going to be like, oh, these girls are like so rude. They're exactly how they're portrayed on television. I would definitely rather people ask than assume. But when I do lose my patience, I wish people would understand that it's not Islam getting angry at them. It's me. Before I'm a girl, before I'm a Muslim, I'm human. Mama, say butta. My sister lives in Virginia with two kids and a husband. She's been a respiratory therapist for the last five years. And she says some people still feel uncomfortable with a hijabi woman treating them. They, like, give me this weird look, like, are you really going to take care of me or are you going to try to sabotage my health, which is not the case. And those who've gotten to know me... Um, would say, like, I give them the best care, and some guy said, you're nothing like them. And I said, who's them? And he said, those Muslims. And I said, no, Muslims are not like those terrorists. That's the correct way to say it.
Religion is supposed to be an intimate thing. It's a relationship between a person and God. You shouldn't have to explain it to anyone except yourself. But as a Muslim in the United States, I doubt there will ever be a time in my life when I won't have to explain it. Luckily, I'm game. For WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Nurhan Basuni. Norhan says the word jihad is widely misunderstood, but how do you educate people without alarming them? On the train, for example, I'm sure someone, if they only catch that word while you're speaking in Arabic, they're going to get nervous. Um, And so I try very hard not to speak Arabic too much on the train, especially when using those contexts. And sometimes I have to catch myself. And so it's, it's little things like that that I have to be really cautious about because so many people still don't understand. You're listening to Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath. I'm Brooke Gladstone. When a family experiences trauma, it changes its dynamics, the way family members communicate or don't communicate. Rookie reporter Erin Rieg is the daughter of a firefighter who was among the first responders on 9-11. Erin's father escaped with broken ribs and a lung injury. But the family struggled for years with the physical and emotional aftermath. Today, Erin says that one of the toughest things about growing up has been learning to wear her heart more on her sleeve. You know, when I'm mad, tell them why I'm mad when I'm mad, not just brush it off. Like, I don't always have to not have an emotion because it's not the right time. Or someone's more upset, so you shouldn't be upset. One way for Erin to let her feelings out was to report her story for Radio Rookies. This story could not be told without the help of my father. Like Bilbo Baggins says, it's always best to start at the beginning. And like the Hobbit, my dad has lived a life of adventure. Not with giants, sword fighting, and rhymes. Although he does like rhymes. A soldier of the Legion lay dying in Algiers. arriving at the dinner table. Lack of woman's nursing, there was dearth of woman's tears. My dad was raised by a World War II captain and then worked as a paramedic before he joined the fire department. So I've grown up hearing about everything from heart attacks to gunshot wounds to fires to bombings. I'd always be going to funerals, so you... Did he ask where you're going today, Dad? Who died? (laughs) And my mom was also a paramedic, raised by a cop. Then she became a nurse. So growing up, everyone in my family was trained, as my dad says, to deal with the situation at hand. Like when his own dad died. And the the priest collapsed with a cardiac arrest at the funeral. And your mother and I just got up and did CPR on him. Even my sister and I jumped in and helped. I think I remember me and Allison being like, okay, everybody stand in the foyer. My sister was 13. (laughs) I was 11. We treat first, and we don't lose our cool. One month later, when the towers were attacked, we were all living our suburban life, but supposedly ready for anything. And my dad was sent to the foot of the World Trade Center. A lot of times in these situations, no matter what you do, people are going to die, and you have to be philosophical about it. So this day, there were some new fellows working, and watching these people fall and explode was really tough on these young guys. And um, one guy, every time another person exploded, he'd just grab his ears and he'd scream, no. I've heard my dad's story maybe a hundred times. I feel like I'm inside his head, looking up. While it's happening, I'm like him. 
unaffected. And I got picked up by a tremendous gust of wind like you would see in uh, one of the tornado movies. The emotional part hit us both much later. Got hit in the back of the head, and then I got hit in the back. And I started getting covered over. Someone videotaped my father immediately after the first tower collapsed. With help, he managed to make it to a hospital. The fastest way to tell you was that your father was okay and that tough times were ahead of us, so brace yourself or whatever is coming. I became a stone. We went to school the next day. We had our sandwiches and everything all packed away. My sister's teacher, she made her stand up in front of the classroom. No buffer, no filter on her at all. Oh, what happened to your dad? Lady, I don't even know what happened to my dad. (laughs) In the hospital, my dad had a collapsed lung, and then he got a bad staph infection. Was I going to be a widow? Some of the fire department men, they would ask me, is this a career-ending injury? I mean, how did I know that, you know? I guess I'm tough. I said, no, he'll go back to work. If he died that day, it would have been like a period. Then this actually happened. Yeah, it was like more like a semicolon. He didn't read the newspapers, but every day um, the firemen were coming in to visit and telling him who died. He would say, how about this one? And they would tell him, and how about this one, and this one, and this one. We weren't supposed to be upset because our dad lived. Like, we didn't lose someone. Yeah, uh, yeah I felt like there were, there were other people in our school that had lost someone. So why would I be so sad? We went to two or three funerals a weekend until Christmas. Did my personality change at all after 9-11? Like... No, actually, I think your easygoing way helped you and your sister through 9-11. I had insomnia, fainting spells, shingles, and other weird sicknesses. (laughs) It shows in your body. You don't complain verbally. It doesn't come out. I remember sleeping in your bed after Mm 9-11. My dad doesn't remember because he was an insomniac himself and downstairs with the TV on. (laughs) That's the something that we had in common. My dad went back to work. But he was only on the job three weeks when a door fell on him. Suddenly, he was home all the time. He was unable to work, in pain, and had to fight for compensation from the fire department. There were reasons to be upset about everything. But none of us ever talked about it. For years, I pretended I was okay. As soon as we were old enough, My sister and I spent as much time driving away as possible. My dad didn't joke anymore. He didn't laugh. The way I remember it, his eyes were dark purple and sunken in. He may not have been gone, but he was gone because we saw him come home and turn into a depressed mess. In my head when I was younger, I used to call him old dad and new dad. Be like, oh, new dad's doing this today. I felt like he didn't want to be around us, and I didn't want to be around him. I feel like, um, like we didn't see him as a hero, and a lot of people wanted us to. Toward the end of high school, I started spending all my time in the art studio. 
I would mix paint and glue and make a rib cage or a heart. My art teacher called it morose. I liked the gross and dirty colors. It made me feel human after years of feeling nothing. Now, I'm a graphic design major at a college in Albany. This past semester, I was talking to my favorite art history professor about using art to grieve. And in 30 seconds, he gave five years of my life a definition. This is what he said. Trauma, Trauma is a break is a in the break continuity, in continuity of existence. existence. You have this flow to your life, everything's going fine, and then there's this rupture. And that rupture is inarticulatable. And when you cannot communicate what you're feeling, you can't communicate your experience, you're separated from other people. Thank you, Dr. Shane. That's what happened to me. Boop-a-doop. All right, well, I'm in my room. This room is, like, full of memories of me being very nothing inside. Oddly enough, my interest in anatomy helped me connect with my parents. They got excited I might be a medical illustrator. One day, my dad went hunting and got a deer. He called me from the kitchen. Aaron, I have a deer heart. You want to see what it looks like? He spent a half hour cutting open the aorta and the ventricles. He showed me how a heart pumps. It was a start. It was a moment of old dad. I've learned a lot from my parents. Resilience when everything seems to be going wrong. And more importantly, how to laugh at the world. Because it is absurd. But I wish I could be more honest about how I feel. Honest with myself and with other people. I feel like sometimes I like... Overexposed? I just have a wall. Like, oh, who died? Okay, this is what's going to happen. Like, I don't have an emotional response to things. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not my first response. Mm -hmm. My first response is to respond, Mm -hmm. not to react. Right, right. And I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it is. You don't know where that comes from? I think it comes from you and you. (laughs) Until now, my parents have never even heard most of this. Maybe it sounds like we can talk about anything. But I spent so many years hiding how I felt that now, when I try to explain my hurt, it's like a whole egg in the back of my throat. I still can't say it. I've always been the problem solver, so it's hard to be the problem. Maybe that's how my dad felt, too. For WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Aaron Reig. When I sat down in the studio to talk with the radio rookies, I asked them about the experience of working alongside their young colleagues. For Norhan, the Muslim-American woman we heard from earlier, one of the most exciting things that happened in the program was getting to meet Aaron's father. I've always wanted to meet a firefighter that was a first responder at 9-11, and I never said this to you, Aaron, but um, I remember the first time I met her father, he came to pick her up and he was downstairs with the dog. And I remember shaking his hand and really thinking to myself, like, wow, I just shook a hand of a hero. I think he's my hero. When we come back after the break, we'll hear a story from a young man who just barely remembers the events of that day. 
but finds they still have the power to change his life. This is Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Welcome back. I'm Brooke Gladstone, and this is Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath. For young people who experienced 9-11 at a distance, or who were very young children at the time, memories of that day are diverse. For some, the attacks were terrifying and life-changing, while others hardly remember them at all. Rookie reporter Brendan Illis was a first grader on September 11, 2001. He and his 16-year-old peers are now among the youngest people to have actual memories of that day. And as Brendan relates in his story, the events of 9-11 may likely have changed the direction of his life. I'm driving with my mom from her home in suburban New Jersey. Like most of my friends, I just got my permit. But in a lot of ways, I'm different. When you were in pre-K, the one thing that you wanted to do when you were a grown-up was watch the news. As soon as I was old enough, I started reading the newspaper. And you didn't start with the comics, like most kids do. Warning. The Michael Savage Show contains adult language. I also listened to a lot of conservative talk radio. My parents begrudgingly allowed it. The radical Muslim world has declared war on America. We are at war. 9-11 was my introduction to politics, world diplomacy, war, the economy. It affected everything. I may have been the youngest neocon ever. This is your Pearl Harbor. Members of the commission, your staff has developed initial findings to present to the public on the nature of the enemy. In fourth grade, I even recorded the 9-11 commission hearings on the cassette tapes so I could hear them when I got home from school. We will focus on Al-Qaeda's history and evolution. At school, I'm known as the walking history book. I take it as a compliment. He was the spiritual leader of Al-Qaeda. Most kids my age don't really think about how 9-11 changed our country. I wish they did. The effort they put into gossiping and sneaking out, I put into researching politics and current events. This girl, Danny, told me she doesn't even feel like 9-11 affected her. It's kind of a long time ago. Can you even remember it? I can't remember it. She's in the grade above me, so I was like, wait a second, how can you not remember that? The next day, my dad's like, oh, by the way, yesterday a building fell over. I'm just like, okay. I figured it was just like someone's house. He never told me anything. <laughs> that's all you remember? No, that's not all I remember. That's all I had. I learned, I think, a year like, later that they didn't let me watch these. I watched SpongeBob. Wow. For the guys in my Boy Scout troop, September 11th was like the beginning of an action movie. They're good guys and they're bad guys. What do you think of Osama being shot? The day after Osama bin Laden was killed, my scout troop had a meeting. Everybody was talking a big game. Is it torture? No. Yeah, I agree. I would shot him somewhere. It hurts. It was the same feeling you get when your team wins. We were like lining up the RPG. And I was like, no, no, no. Last year, I started a blog. It's like a direct line into my head. I posted this question to my followers. Do you think 9-11 affected our generation? Like, we just, we don't care as much as we should. This girl I've never met in person responded. My name's Anna, and I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. Can you tell me quick, like, how you met me? Um, over a blogging site called Tumblr. Anna told me about one time when Tumblr crashed, which it does a lot. When it came back up, people were posting pictures of the Twin Towers saying, oh, Tumblr crashed, and they're saying, like, it's the same thing when it's nowhere near it. It's awful. 
They were comparing the deaths of almost 3,000 people to a website crashing for a couple of days. Maybe I take the World Trade Center attacks more seriously because we talk about that kind of stuff in my family. Please don't eat with your fingers. Like one night at dinner. There's a difference between hearing that a thousand people died and actually seeing images of people jumping to their deaths because they have no hope of survival. My parents always give us answers, even to difficult questions. My 10-year-old sister, Catherine, just learned about 9-11 from a documentary she saw on TV. Would you rather die by jumping out a window or from a fire? I don't know. Honestly, hope I'm never put in that position. But to know that the people in that building, many of them were in that position, is just heartbreaking. I'm in the youngest group of people who remember 9-11. As a 16-year-old who gets it, I fear that people younger than me won't understand, and it'll lose its importance. If we let our guard down, it could happen again. <laughs> Just say hello. Hi. I'm with my little sister Catherine in the back seat of the car. Can you tell me how old you were when 9-11 happened? Um, I wasn't even one. I was zero. Do you think it had a pretty big effect on you? Not really. The world didn't change for Catherine on September 11th. She's never known anything else. Well, it was big to other people. It was big, but not to my life. My other sister Sarah thinks we talk about it too much. So you have no specific memories of that day? No. You, you think I haven't thought about this before? I've tried to remember. <laughs> so you don't, you don't, I don't even you remember don't... having you as a brother when I was three. <laughs> <laughs> She's starting high school this year. It's like the past, but it shouldn't be like the main event, like the focus of the country. I was momentarily horrified. I think reminding people of it once a year is enough. They don't need to be reminded of it more than that because it just brings up memories. I was only six when 9-11 happened. And I remember afterwards, I started playing a new game, Firefighter. My friend and I would pretend that one of us was trapped in the Twin Towers and we would save each other. Maybe it's a Boy Scout thing, but I never want to be the one standing around watching. Seeing all the people that stood up and helped on that day has made me want to protect and serve my country by joining the military. Mom, could you come here for a second? I brought it up to my mom one night in the kitchen. I just wanted to let you know that, um... I've been thinking a lot, and either before or after, or in conjunction with college, I want to enlist in the military. Well, you have time before you have to make that commitment. I know. It is a commitment. I'm, yeah. She thinks that I'm young and don't really understand what I could be getting myself into. I saw what war did to my dad, and I was only Catherine's age. I'm somewhat concerned about the sensitive side of you. I'm and not as sensitive as you Can I remind you of the lobster incident? That was a long time ago, Mom. You know, it just seems like a common courtesy not to boil things alive. So following directions without question is not something that you've ever been very good at. I, you know well, that. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's afraid of war changing who I am, but it's too late. 9-11 and the wars have already made me who I am.
For WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Brandon Ellis. As we've heard in this hour, young people's responses to 9-11 are as varied as their personalities and as their specific experiences. Eric Leinung was in his seventh grade math class when he heard the news that the Twin Towers had collapsed. The loss of his brother seemed to break Eric's family apart, especially his relationship with his mother. They clashed, sometimes violently. Eventually, things got better, and Eric says that making a radio story about it helped, even though his family's first reactions were mixed at best. My mother, when she heard the first draft of the story, was very unhappy. Years went back in the progress we've made in our relationship, which I feel very bad about. But we made edits, and we corrected the story, and now she loves it. Wait a second. You're saying that telling the story in the first draft set the relationship with your mother back years? Yeah. Did editing it push it forward again, or is there still damage control to be done? Editing it definitely pushed it forward a lot. And doing the story, working on the story, interviewing her, um, we made a lot of progress towards um, reconciling our differences and coming together as a family. Families are complicated. Especially mine. I like to think it wasn't that way before my brother was killed, but it was. Eric, you were a pain in the ass always. Honestly, you just really were. I had bad OCD and ADHD. You were a complicated kid. You had a lot of issues. And my mom was explosive. There's a certain streak of stubbornness that runs in the family on both sides, which did not skip you. (laughs) My brother Paul was 10 years older. We used to play video games in his basement apartment for hours. He was the person I told everything to, and he listened to me. And he was very protective of you. Like this one time, when we had to go to my little cousin's christening. We'd gone crazy to get you dress shoes. Finally, I sent Paul to the store with you because I had just about had it, and he came home with these cute little hush puppy-type shoes. Nope, they bothered your feet. And on the way to the party, and you squeezed them out the window. Paul carried you part of the way, and I think I wanted to kill you, but he was like, don't kill him, Mom, just have a glass of wine. You'll feel better. So that's the kind of brother he was. All right, let's start. Here's the show starting right now. Calling Mom. She's a big person. When Paul went away to college, he had a radio show. Hello? Hi, it's me. Hi. You're live on the radio, no cursing. I thought he was hilarious. Hi, Mom. Well, now here's your mother live on the radio. Both of you stay. Oh, for crying out loud. Both of you stay. Can I be live on the radio? Yeah, Eric can too. Hi, Paul. Hi, Eric. How are you? How are you doing? Good, how are you doing? This is Eric, my 10-year-old brother. How are you doing tonight? Good. Eric, it's 10 o'clock. Why aren't you sleeping? I was just I'm thinking. going to bed. Yeah, you, you should I'm not going. sleeping because I was watching Christopher Columbus. Oh, really? You know that Columbus actually stole the land from the Native Americans. Hi. Paul got a job at the World Trade Center straight out of school. He was at work on the 100th floor when the planes hit. And what was your initial reaction? My initial reaction was my son is dead. Because I could see the plane had hit about where his office was, so I realized, Dad, I'd never find him. That with all that falling on him, there wouldn't be any him. I felt terrible that I had to tell you your brother was killed and never coming home. My mother stops going to work for the next couple of months. She spent a lot of time in her room. And your sister kind of withdrew. She kind of never wanted to talk about it, you know, so that was hard. 
I wanted to join the military, hop in a tank, and roll it over Osama bin Laden. But I was a kid, and I couldn't do that. I couldn't even mention that I missed Paul, because my mom would start crying. So I would throw things and hit people. Usually my mom, sometimes my sister. My mom and I would hit each other. Afterwards, I would feel so guilty that sometimes I would throw up. There were times you were so upset that you'd say things like, I know you wish that it was me that died instead of Paul every time you'd want to hurt me. Well, sometimes I felt like when Paul died, you forgot that Kristen and I were still around, and it hurt me very deeply that day when you were crying and you said you had nobody, and I said to you, Mom, you have me, and you said, no, I don't, you don't even have yourself. And for years, I thought that you didn't want me around. Possibly because I had so deeply wished that it had been me instead. Because Paul was the person that made peace in our household. And I was just making things worse. Mothers don't feel like that, ever. You know, what I meant when you didn't have yourself was, yeah, you were still trying to find yourself, Eric. You were a baby. And you were having a lot of problems already. So what I meant was, how could I talk to you about my problems? Obviously, it was a painful statement, and I'm sorry. But you've got to learn to forgive people and move on. Nobody's ever going to be perfect, Eric, and say always the right thing at always the right time. You know, and I was in a shock, too. And it's 10 years later. And as a grown-up now, or at least somebody who's growing up, can you try to understand that much? Of course. But you haven't let it go. You still haven't let it go. That's me, at age six, hosting the PS312 annual talent show. Around that same time, my mom started me in acting classes, because she thought it would be good for me. And she was right. When I was in high school, I started using some of the exercises to control my anger. I would picture myself sitting on a swing at her house in the Poconos, and I wouldn't feel like fighting. I remember the first time I didn't lose control. My mom and I were yelling at each other. I threatened her, and then realized how out of control I was. I went to my room. She came in furious and started throwing stuff. But instead of hitting her, I climbed out the window onto the fire escape. We were in a situation that was seriously screwed up, wherein a member of our family was murdered. I'm in the car with my dad driving home from college. You had to grow up, and I had to try to help you grow up within that context. He's always been a peace activist. So his reaction to 9-11, and to our family's pain, was to try to solve the bigger problem. While I was fantasizing about revenge, my dad was lobbying to get us out of Iraq. He joined a group known as 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. What was it like being a member of Peaceful Tomorrows and knowing that your son still wanted to personally go in and obliterate the people who had done this. Look, I could understand that completely because I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I didn't have fantasies that, you know, if I happened to find myself in a room with Osama bin Laden and a gun, that I wouldn't have picked it up and pulled the trigger. I mean, I'm not pretending that, that I'm not human. Do you feel at all, as I know mom feels and as I felt sometimes in the beginning, 
that you got a little too wrapped up in the work with Peaceful Tomorrows and forgot about our family? You know, that's a hard thing to say because I had to try to find a little bit of time to try to take care of me too. For a long time, I felt completely alone. So in sophomore year of high school, I asked my dad to teach me how to play guitar. And that's an A. I also asked him to take me on a peaceful tomorrow's retreat with him. I was the only kid there. Everyone had lost family, so they knew what it was like. They didn't know Paul, but they were willing to talk to me about him. It was the first time I ever heard someone tell me I was strong. They also talked about how many civilians were being killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mothers were losing sons, and brothers were losing brothers. It wasn't just about my family anymore. I've come a long way, but I still get angry. It was hard for you to control yourself for a while, but you're doing very well with that. You don't lash out at people or break things anymore. I still yell sometimes. So does my mom. Uh, You and I could talk somewhat, (laughs) but it's still kind of hard. It's, It's still that absence. I'm still ashamed of how I acted back then and afraid if I stop feeling guilty, I'll slip back into the same habits. I think every one of us feels we could have done better. There wasn't any roadmap on how to get through something like that. And so everybody just did the best they can, and everybody has to forgive themselves first and then just forgive each other and move on. Okay, what time do you have to go to uh, leave for Rocky? I've just moved back home. I'm living in Paul's old basement apartment. So what did you do yesterday anyway? Well, you had Amanda, right, here? Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks, I had that work out. Well, I'm still acting. Right now, I'm in the New York City cast of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Elaborate. <laughs> no. My sister moved out and got her own place. I mean, you know, give me, like, a little detail. My mom went back to school for her Ph.D. and teaches nursing. And Dad joined the church band. I don't want to know, like, you know, we got naked or anything. Mother! <laughs> but we still miss Paul every day. I like to tell people that it's like losing an arm. Now, you never grow your arm back, but you do all the things of daily life that most people do with two arms, you learn how to do with one. I feel like Paul is still there. I'll always look up to him. He still motivates a lot of what I do, including making peace with my mom. And sometimes, when I'm on stage, I even think I can see him in the audience. For WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Eric Grayson Lino. You've been listening to Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath, a collection of stories produced by young reporters about their own lives in the Radio Rookies program here at WNYC. Each of them derived different lessons from the horrible events of that day, but in every case, 9-11 opened their eyes to the world outside themselves and thrust them quickly, perhaps too quickly, into a grown-up place of deadly stakes and inescapable consequences. None of the young people you just heard can be accused of magical thinking. They are realists, and reality is unrelenting. 
Some say that's what 9-11 did to the nation in general. I don't think so. The American capacity for magical thinking is inexhaustible. But these young people bear the traces of smoke and ash, and that will probably affect their choices for decades to come as they move through this very real world. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Thanks for listening. Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath, was produced by Kari Pitkin and Ben Shapiro, with help from Karen Frillman and WNYC Program Director Chris Bannon. The Rookie Stories were produced by Sonda Tai, Courtney Stein, and Marianne McCune. Our intern was Alex Wheeler. The mix engineers were John Delore and Mike Jones. WNYC's Radio Rookies program is supported by Adobe Foundation, Digital Learning Media Fund at the New York Community Trust, Fred L. Emerson Foundation, Margaret Newbart Foundation, McCormick Foundation, National Endowment for the Arts, New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, New York State Council on the Arts, Robert Baum Foundation, Verizon Foundation, and the W. Clement and Jesse V. Stone Foundation. Our 9-11, Growing Up in the Aftermath, is a production of WNYC Radio and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.